You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths taught in school and on corporate media. Today we have John from Working Class History. His website is www.workingclasshistory.com. Thank you for joining us, John. Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in working class history? I guess I just got into it. Um, I mean, I I never liked history at school. Mm-hmm. Um, I dropped it as soon as I in in the UK. You can drop classes really soon. So at thirteen, dropped it just because none of it was kind of relevant to my life or experiences or anything like that. And just later in life, having got interested in politics and got involved in like organising in the workplace and things like that, you know, I then started looking at struggles in the past and things like that, and then finding that really interesting because it was really relevant to my life and those kind of around me and that sort of history that's about ordinary people and how we've helped change the world and things like that. How do you find the documentation? Because history is often written by the bourgeoisie. So how do you find all those events and documents before there was videos and TVs, etc.? It's quite difficult to find out uh, a lot of it. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, a lot of great work has been done by kind of radical historians over time and, you know, history groups as well. Like in the UK, there was a group called History Workshop who were great at kind of recording a lot of direct kind of spoken history. And that's a problem with a lot of our history, you know, of ordinary people is it's not written down, it's kind of spoken. But certainly, there's still a lot of information in things like local newspapers are a great source of information that's, but they're just quite hard to browse. And also like the stuff in national newspapers, which now a lot of them have online archives and stuff like that. So it can be difficult to find things out, but information is, is around. Okay. So today the topic is a history of direct action. So what exactly is direct action? Like most people don't know what it is. If you use, I mean, they probably have done it, but they don't know what the word is. Yeah. Kind of simply, direct action is when people take some sort of action to further their interest themselves without any third party involvement. So they're not kind of writing a letter to their senator asking a senator to implement a policy change or signing a petition to their boss saying, will you give them a pay rise? They are doing something to make that happen. So they're putting their body and their life on the line in some way to make that change happen. So essentially, rather than appealing or begging for scraps, essentially, it's saying we will cause disruption or we will hurt your profits in a way that until you give us what we want. Well, I mean, the boss or the employer is the most direct tyrant you have, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because normally we live in a democracy, but a lot of our waking time we spend in the workplace, which is not democratic in the slightest. Well, here at Historically, we want it to be democratic, and I want to be accountable only to you, the audience members. And so we are 100% patron-supported. And to support wonderful works like interviews with John, please go to www.patreon.com historically. Patreon.com historic underscore L-Y. And so what are some of the types of direct actions like have people done in the past and what are they called and what did they do? Yeah, so um, there's loads of different types of direct action that people can take. I think it's kind of broadly helpful to split it up into a couple of different areas. 
So action that can be taken in the workplace, action that can be taken around housing and action and that can be taken in communities. Yeah, actually, like we should probably mention that. In the housing, like the landlord is the central point that's undemocratic, right? Yes, housing is something which is a basic human need, but it's provided solely upon our ability to pay for it. Exactly. And often it is controlled by a landlord who can often set the rules if it's not properly regulated. Yeah, exactly. And housing in in general, you know, because it's driven for profit, you Uh know, like all things that are done for profit, there's artificial scarcity that's created to keep prices high. So there's widespread homelessness. At the same time, there's loads of empty properties, which are, you know, landlords make money by keeping them empty because the value just goes up. It seems That seems to be a problem on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. Like here in New York, similar to London, so many just empty, like luxury, really lovely properties that have no one living in them, while at the same time there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of... The UK has hundreds of thousands of homeless people, but more empty properties. Let me just quickly talk about adverse possession. Just so you know, everyone, Google adverse possession. It is completely legal. And if you find an empty house, go live there. (laughs) Okay, so let's start with the workplace tyrannies. Can you explain, like, each of it in a historical context? So, like, one example is a strike. Yeah, sure. So this is probably the most commonly used, widespread, and well-known form of direct action, strike action. Mm -hmm. And especially in a capitalist society, capitalist society is based on our labor power, our ability to work every day for a wage. And so is our most powerful kind of weapon in our tool to kind of emancipate ourselves. withholding labor, right? Exactly. So it's based on our ability to work. So by withholding that, we can bring the whole system to a halt. So the very first strike... um, In recorded history. (laughs) Yeah, the very first recorded strike was around 1155 BC in ancient Egypt. It was in Deir al-Medina, where construction workers who were building a tomb for Ramses III went on strike. It's a kind of common misconception that the pyramids and things were built by slaves. No, it was not. Yeah, they were mostly built by skilled construction workers. Exactly. Um, and, you know, like, you know, in a, similar to things that happened today, that one month came by and they didn't get their paycheck. So they sort of, you know, they waited. They still didn't get their pay. And after 18 days, you know, they just put down their tools and then they marched on the city and and then they occupied a building and said, you know, they wanted their pay. And <laughs> the uh, authorities initially tried to buy them off by giving them some corn and then some pastries. <laughs> um, and um, But, you know, over the next three years... They, wait, they occupied the building for three years? No, 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 no. So, you know, they, 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 they got given some extra food and then got sent away. But over the next three years, multiple times, they were paid late or, you know, they were given not good enough food that kind of thing. So they took repeated strike action, including occupations, over the next three years. And when authorities sent in guards, essentially, to threaten to use force against them, they said that they would trash the tombs if the guards were used against them. So then they kind of pulled back and, and, and they had to kind of give in. So, you know, striking is, is, is probably as old as any kind of work itself. That's pretty awesome that they, threatened, like, because right now the only thing that survives from ancient Egypt is the tomb. So they were, that was pretty hardcore. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. Um, yeah, so they, they, did have a lot of, they did have a lot of clout. And what was great was that that was all written down um, by and, a scribe. And it worked, right? Yeah, 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 it did. So what is the difference between a wildcat strike and a general strike? 
Yeah, so a wildcat strike essentially is a strike which is taken directly by workers themselves, not authorised by a union. So often it means it doesn't obey various laws that, that exist or whatever, like recent teachers' strikes in West Virginia. A general strike is probably the most powerful weapon that workers have because it's saying that everyone will go on strike. So these have been used multiple times in history when essentially to support one group of workers, a whole everyone has walked out in support of them. In India, we had, when I was young, we had something called a Bharat Band, and that literally shut down everything in India. And I don't remember why they were striking, but the government responded with giving them all their demands in a few days. But I do remember seeing the Band happening. Yeah, so that was my first-hand experience with the general strike. It was amazing. So in America, general strikes don't happen often, right? This is true. I mean, there are some examples in the U.S. A particularly famous one is it Seattle in 1919, mm-hmm. um, where and and that was a particularly interesting general strike because it wasn't just one where people stopped work. Workers actually took over the city of Seattle and put on essential services and organized them by themselves. So, so they started a little commune. Essentially, yeah. In the 1919 general strike in Seattle, yeah, workers organized essential services for themselves and. Other general strikes have happened in American cities, for example, San Francisco in the 1930s, and there was a general strike. And in Oakland in 1946, there was a strike of a few hundred women retail workers mm-hmm. who had some you know, relatively small demands. But then across the whole city, loads of other people walked out. Basically, the whole city shut down in support of them. And so in cases like that, that's when workers have been sort of really successful, when that's when we have the most power. If one group of workers take action others walk out with our own demands, you know, and we all kind of come together. Oh, well, I sometimes wonder whether that's why the recently the teacher strike has had like the most success is because it's kind of inconvenient to have your five-year-old with you, like trying to jump on the walls or whatever five-year-olds do. So the parents are more likely to yell at the congressional representative. Can you compare the efficacy of electoral politics with that of direct action? Sure. Many people, myself included, think that direct action is the most effective tool that we have for achieving social change. And we think the historical record kind of bears that out. You know, if you look at the historical record of social movements which have used direct action, they've been much more successful than areas where that hasn't been used. And so, you know, when the civil rights movement really started to have success was when people started to take action, you know, like sit-ins in the 40s and 50s um, desegregated a lot of establishments like eateries and you know the montgomery bus boycott sparked by rosa parks desegregated public transport and that sort of thing and lucy parsons was a legendary african-american mexican labor organizer and anarchist and one thing she said was that never be deceived that the rich will let you vote away their wealth i agree in that or at least if you're outside the u.s the u.s will come in and wait (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think history is full of examples of successful direct action campaigns. You know, like in the UK, the suffragette movement, women had asked for the right to vote for a long time. But it was when suffragettes started going through the streets, smashing places up, saying fire to things, attacking politicians, you know. Slow down. Do explain. So the suffragists, so there were these like ladies dressed in like proper Victorian gear and they were smashing up things? Uh, Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the... yeah, there was, I mean, in, in the women's suffrage movement, there were kind of two okay. major... So, so when did the women's suffrage movement start in the UK? 
It was it was kind of early 20th century. Uh-huh. And when the suffragettes began their campaign of direct action, I believe it was 1912 when uh-huh. they adopted that line. And then they would go window smashing. So they would go down and they'd trash stores. And, you know, there was one famous suffragette was in a wheelchair. And so she would use the wheelchair to carry stones around for the others to... Oh, she hid the stones in the wheelchair so none of the police would suspect. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, oh, oh. May, May, May Billinghurst, I think. Oh, May Billinghurst. Yeah. Um, yeah, so May Billinghurst was a disabled suffragette who was in a wheelchair, and so she would use her chair to stash stones. Oh, to, okay, and then they would, like, hide under her clothes, and then they'd, she'd go and go... Whoosh. Exactly. And also, you know, one suffragette, Theresa Garnett, uh-huh. um, attacked uh, Winston Churchill oh uh, my God. in the street and beat him with a horse whip. Oh, oh my God, you have to tell me. Okay, okay, as an Indian, I have a specific negative feeling, not negative feeling, but, like... Negative feeling is fine towards Winston Churchill because he engineered the mass famine in Bengal and killed four million people in India. So do tell me about beating up Winston Churchill with a horse whip. Yeah, no, exactly. And I'm glad you mentioned the Bengal famine because a lot of people, you know, uh, in in the UK, he's then lionized as a hero. Oh, but in God. fact, he's, don't even start me. He was a racist war criminal and a and, and, yeah, an anti-Semite. Okay, so yeah. do tell me about getting but, um, whipped. But, but yeah, one 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 day he went to Bristol. And a young suffragette called Teresa Garnett saw him in a railway station. And, uh, well, I, I think she went there deliberately because she had a horse whip. So she must have taken it deliberately to meet him. And then she beat him with it and said, take that in the name of the insulted women of England. Take that in the name of? The insulted women of England. Take that in the name of the insulted women of England. Wow, that is leg- le- legendary. Okay. <laughs> and um, did they arrest her? Um, I... I believe so, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and and there was were lots he prime of... minister back then? No, I believe he was. I believe he was the home secretary at the time. That is still pretty impressive. Like a home secretary is kind of like the secretary of interior in America, right? Yeah, exactly. And but they did things like you know they blew up politicians' houses. Who's they the... burnt down? Um, you know they burnt down cricket. You know they burnt down sports stadiums. <sighs> they bombed uh, Westminster Abbey. What? So suffragists in England bombed Westminster Abbey? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so, wow. Tell me about this. Like, l- l- slow down yeah. and go s- explain and, everything. And, and well, you know, and this kind of thing, you know, it, it was a form of sort of direct action. But, you I, know, I, I, I'm not saying that this, you know, is, is what I'm sort of advocating, you know, specifically, oh, this, oh, this exact kind of thing. He's not advocating um, for terrorism, but we do <laughs> want to hear about how they blew up Westminster Abbey. So go yeah. ahead. Well, I mean, no, that's kind of it. You know, they put a lot of small bombs in places. Oh, and yeah, small bombs and blew them, but particularly places related to the church and related to telecommunications. They blew up a lot of post boxes and telephone exchange boxes. And they did injure a few postal workers by posting incendiary devices, you know, through the post and things like that, which was obviously not something that, that people should do because, you know, you shouldn't injure fellow workers. But, you know, that is an aspect of the movement for women's liberation in, in the UK, which is rarely spoken about and is normally kind of like, uh, hushed under the... I would never have heard of it. By the way, I just found a picture from the Library of Congress of Westminster Abbey right after it was bombed. And this is what they say under the caption. A bomb left by suffragists behind the high altar in Westminster Abbey caused only minimal damage yesterday. The date is June 11th, 1914. The bomb had been placed beneath the coronation chair and exploded at 5.40 p.m. when there were some hundred people in the abbey. A fragment was blown off the chair and a large quantity of plaster fell from the ceiling. 
The dust of the plaster and the smoke from the bomb left an impression of great catastrophe as the people rushed from the building. However, no injuries were reported. Yeah, I've never heard of it. Yeah, no, there's loads of stuff like that. And they, I mean, some, some others threw an axe at the prime minister, threw an axe at his head, narr- narrowly missing him. Wow. So UK suffragists, like, oh my God, they were the hardcore suffragists compared to American suffragists. In some ways, yes. But in other ways, you know, the US suffragette movement was more progressive in other ways because that movement was for universal voting rights for women. Whereas technically, the official organizations of the suffrage movement in the UK were mostly asking for the right to vote for property-owning women. The suffragists in the U.S. were pretty racist. They only wanted voting for white women. Yeah, obviously. I wouldn't there's... say universal. <laughs> yeah, maybe, 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 yeah, maybe scratch that bit. But, um, and when did all women get the right to vote in the U.K.? Well, property-owning women and working-class men got the right to vote in 1918. Uh-huh. Um, and then all women got the right to vote 10 years later in 1928. This is, like, amazing. So our history is so sanitized. And I think history is full of examples, you know, like the civil rights movement and the suffragette movement of um, direct action campaigns which have been successful. And India. Yeah, I mean, the whole of, you know, the colonized world, they didn't get given independence back, you know, without doing anything, especially, like, across, the, as it was called, the British Caribbean, there were a wave of general strikes across there in the 30s, then again in the 40s, and in Again, British East Africa, there was a wave of general strikes in the 40s and 50s as part of movements which ended up getting independence. And at the same time as that, there's a lot of, I think you find an equal number through history of electoral promises which have evaporated once people have got into power. And that's because once you're there, like you're not, you're no longer as directly accountable. Like when somebody has a stick to your face, you're a lot more accountable to them, then three years later, they're going to re-elect somebody else, right? Exactly. So, and not only that, but when you're in opposition, Mm -hmm. you don't have to follow through with anything you say you're going to do. Whereas when you're in power, you're in the situation where you do have to manage, in a capitalist society, you have to manage the capitalist economy. And so, you know, sometimes you get progressive governments that get in, and they want to do something progressive, but then international financial establishments or, you know, they have to deal with the realities of the economy and they say, well, you can't do that or we're going to take investment out of the country. The Labour Capital fly or the IMF will come in or that stuff. Oh, yeah. And we talk about that in our two episodes earlier when we talk about the shock doctrine in Russia. So the audience knows what happens there. And then there's the whole actual coups that the US, uh, but which we've talked ahead of at least had three episodes on. <laughs> so 1900. Uh-huh. Um, how long did the worker have to work in a factory? Did they get Christmas holidays off? I don't have the data on me on the kind of exact years, but, you know, it was standard in the 1800s. Workers worked kind of 14-hour days, seven days a week, like ne- nearly all the year. And What, what if, like, in, we can just stick to England. What if, like, one of the machines was unsafe and it chopped off a worker's arm? Um, yeah, then too bad. Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, tough shit, basically. Too bad. Yeah. You know, then you're just out of a job and you're... Don't have an arm. Yeah. Okay. So you're telling me that everything we have now that we think is normal is through direct action from workers. Yeah, essentially. I mean, even things that seem like the weekend, you know, it seems like a thing. That's Saturday and Sunday. That's the thing at the end of the week. It's the weekend, but it's not a weekend. You know, it's not a natural thing. It was created by workers' movements who fought for it and, you know, fought for regular time off, 
every week. You know, there were huge numbers of strikes and people were killed and went to jail for asking for this. And, you know, particularly in the US, there were lots of really militant strikes for a really long time for that eight hour day, you know, an eight hour day, five day week in the 1880s in Chicago. Um, eight people got sentenced to death for fighting for the eight-hour day. Wait, they got sentenced to death for just striking? Uh, Not even for striking themselves, for being part of the movement for the eight-hour day. So they're called the Haymarket Martyrs. Uh And And they killed them? They killed, they executed four of them. Holy God. The fifth committed suicide. Um, He blew himself up before he could be executed. And the others eventually got commuted. But they're called the Haymarket Martyrs. And they're commemorated on May Day, the 1st of May each year, International Workers' Day, which was the 1st of May was the date in 1886 when in Chicago, workers had said, from this day forth, eight hours shall constitute a legal day's work. And then after that, you know, workers' groups made the 1st of May, International Workers' Day, in commemoration of that struggle. Yeah, well, sadly, it seems like technology, instead of like cutting down people's work, Now people are constantly working. They're teleworking, they're like working, and their boss is always on cell phone where they can text them and say, work, 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 right? Yeah, no, exactly. And moving forwards in the US again, in the fight for the kind of eight-hour day carried on for decades, and in the 30s there are a lot of strikes again, again, a lot of them by women workers fighting for the eight-hour day who launched sit-down strikes, which were basically strikes that workers came up with to stop um, bosses using scabs to replace them. Oh, so oh, they would go into the factory and just sit in front of their machines? Exactly. So then scabs couldn't come in and do the jobs. Mm-hmm. They would just occupy the workplace and sit it out, essentially, and that was a way that workers found that they could win more quickly. And so there were a lot of these famous ones in the auto industry in the 30s, but also kind of less well-known were occupations, sit-down strikes by women workers. So in the US, like department store workers um, nice. went on sit-down strikes and um, like women working for Woolworths did sit-down strikes until they won a 40-hour week and Polish immigrant cigar makers, again women in Detroit had sit-down strikes in the 30s um, for the for the 40-hour week and eventually yeah, it led to the establishment of a legal standard of a 40-hour week in the United States after many years. That's amazing and sadly a lot of it has been rolled back thanks to Ronald Reagan and Clinton and Bush and... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I guess what you're trying to say is voting is like just like a bare minimum of participation and everyone's participation needs to be bigger than voting and including direct action. Is that what you're saying? I mean, on kind of voting, I think it's up for people to make to make their own sort of decisions. But <laughs> certainly, whatever your view on it, voting alone isn't enough to really change things. Because, I mean, if you look somewhere like the UK, mm-hmm. where I'm from, obviously... Whatever party you vote for, from the far left to the far right, every party there says they want free health care, right? Whereas in the US, both parties, neither of them say you get free health (laughs) care. Do you see what I mean? So, I mean, that on its own shows that voting isn't sufficient to make real choices. It's what is beneath that, the system that is kind of beneath that. And ultimately, it comes down to, I mean, partly is how different capitalist economies are managed. Uh But then also is partly what will people put up with? And we will get from the bosses, from governments, what we will put up with ultimately, because they've got no incentive to give us any more than that. Unless we inconvenience them. Exactly. So essentially, we have to do stuff to make it cost them more to not give us what we want than for them to give us what we want. That sounds like econ 101 logic. It's basic. I mean, it is. Capitalism is about profit. And so, you know, 
if you cost them more. So that's why these strikes are successful, because while you're on strike, say, the employer doesn't make money. So in the long run, it will cost the employer less if they give you a pay rise. And governments kind of work in the same in the same way. Exactly. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, this is a creative one, um, we want to talk about bus napping? <laughs> <laughs> Over different times, workers have found different ways of exacting gains from their employer. And one thing which has been done, at least as far as I'm aware, mostly in places like France and China, is workers don't just stop work, but they go and they lock their bosses into a room. <laughs> um, and then they don't let them go until they've got what they want. And there's been quite a bit of that in um, France recently in the 2000s. And, oh, wow. And, that recent? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and in China, because obviously there's been big strike waves in China over the past 10 years. And so far, that's been used quite successfully. <laughs> I mean, in India last week, 500 million people went on strike and no one reported this in American media. And no one's even reporting the Gillette Jaune. So what's going on there? Any theories? I mean, American news media is just, is like a whole other, you know, it's not really like anything else. American news media hardly reports anything that happens outside of, you know, I mean, doesn't even get to Hawaii or Alaska, you know, if it's if it's not in the the continental US, it doesn't even Exist. come on the come on the radar. But I mean, yes, yeah, certainly there's a, a rebellion is viral and when people hear about it, especially when it's successful, people emulate it and that is uh, that is not something that um Oh, okay. So um, now can we talk about work-ins? What are they? Yeah, so work-ins are another type of direct action in the workplace that people have employed at various points. And essentially, that is potentially a really powerful way of workers taking direct action because you're not only occupying your workplace, but you are then taking it over and running it collectively by yourselves. Oh, Wow, they did that in the USSR where they took munitions factory and decided to arm the Bolsheviks instead of the Tsar's people, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the Russian Revolution, and well, and I think, yeah, I think you've pointed to it is kind of an inherently a revolutionary act because uh-huh. that's how you can move from a society where we go to work to make profit for our bosses who are already rich, or we spend our productive time doing what we want ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, so potentially it's a really revolutionary thing, but even outside of like revolutions, there have been kind of smaller examples of this, like in the UK in the 70s and 80s, there were a number of hospitals that were facing closure, say. And then to try and fight the closure, um, hospital workers decided they would take over the hospital and run it themselves, you know, collectively with the support of the community to try and keep it open. So that happened in a number of um, places. And then did it work? In quite a few of them, yeah. Some of them, the hospitals are still open today. Others, they stayed open for another 10, 15 years. Some were kind of really violently kind of broken up where police and private security got sent in and dragged patients literally out of their beds. Holy, wow. Um, but yeah, certainly a number of them were sort of successful. And in Argentina in 2001, um, when there was a financial crisis, a number of, and, and more recently in the Greek crisis, a number of employers kind of abandoned their workplaces and quite a few of those were taken over by the workforce who then ran them collectively. Amazon warehouse people, listen. <laughs> uh, but no, we, yeah, we, obviously this is for entertainment purposes only and we'd never encourage anyone to do anything. Um, I mean, I'd encourage people to expropriate Jeff uh, Bezos, <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, <laughs> well, okay, yeah, we're not um, inciting a riot or anything. Okay. 
<laughs> Wait, um, that sounds... Oh, okay. But Amazon people, warehouse people do listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit about mutinies, what they are? Yeah, so, I mean, essentially a mutiny is kind of like a strike, but if your job is being a, a soldier or in the military in some way. So for someone who's a service person or a soldier, it's a bit more dangerous to take that sort of industrial action. And it's also like deserting is illegal and a great way to get court-martialed. Exactly. Well, mutiny is illegal. And for oh, a lot of time, too. yeah, mutiny does that, you know, they're illegal and can have the death penalty uh-huh. um, for it. So it's a very kind of risky thing to do. But, you know, even short of that, soldiers have done things like in World War One, a lot of British soldiers would because World War, you know, World yeah, War One, obviously, it's big, a, it's a family to- fight that totally, that. totally pointless conflict. Exactly. You know, it was just um, treaties and family, like like Habsburg people, like inbred people, just like having a hissy fit. Exactly, and like the last surviving British soldier from World War One was a guy called Harry Patch, and he was a really top bloke. And what he said about it was, we should have just put all the politicians, given them guns, put them all in a room, and let them sort it out. But you know what? What his unit did is what a lot of people did, which was that basically they agreed that just between themselves, they wouldn't fire any bullets at any people. You know, if they had to, they'd shoot some, you know, they'd shoot their guns in the air or whatever, make a bit of a show to look like they were doing their job. But they weren't. And if they had to shoot someone, they'd get them in the leg or, or whatever. And that is something. And then, you know, as the war progressed and it got even more, Bloody you know, awful, people talk about World War One a lot, right, especially as it was recently the 100th anniversary. And they talk about, um, you know, how it started. Mm-hmm. But in the kind of media and, you know, the, mm-hmm. the press, they never talk about how it ended. Well, in 1917, <laughs> Russia just, like, left because the, they got rid of the czars and the Bolsheviks came in and were like, screw that. But then the war still tried to happen with everyone else besides Russia, right? Well, yeah, exactly. Like, the, the Russian soldiers, they turned their guns on their own officers and Good their job. own government. And they went back home and they, you know, and then there were the, essentially the French army mutinied en masse. And the German navy mutinied. Because they were ordered to, you know, go and attack the British. And then the sailors just said no. And they went back to shore and started a revolution. You know, the German Revolution of 1918. Yeah. Um, and um, they were joined by German workers, German mm-hmm. soldiers. And then, you know, there were also sizable mutinies in the British Army as well. A lot smaller. But essentially World War One ended because of the German Army and Navy mutinying and having a revolution instead. And Okay, so... It's- that's very interesting. Yes, you hear about the Treaty of Versailles, but you never hear about the pressure that forced the politicians to get into that treaty, right? Exactly, because German high command wanted to keep fighting for no reason until their troops said no. So, yeah, essentially, I think that kind of thing shows that governments seem powerful when we obey them. Yes. You know, but ultimately, they're reliant on us doing their bidding. And, you know, this is even much more recently, say, in the Vietnam War, Again, something that's not spoken about that much is that U.S. troops in the Vietnam War, most of them were anti-war themselves and, you know, did a lot of stuff to sabotage the American war effort. I heard that, like, somebody did some research where they figured out all these captains, like, who died in their sleep of quote-unquote suicide, and they said there was, like, quite a lot of incidents of mutiny where they just shot their captains. Yeah, well, we've done a couple of podcast episodes uh, about this um, with former GIs, about the GI movement. And um, yeah, that's true. There was a thing called fragging, which was rolling a fragmentation grenade under the bunk bed of a disliked officer. And there were hundreds of incidents of fragging in the Vietnam War where, you know, American soldiers blew up or killed their own officers. Sometimes they wouldn't just 
and and even things like there were loads of GI anti-war newspapers, so the soldiers would make their own anti-war papers wow. and distribute them. And sometimes they would even raise bounties for people to frag <laughs> unpopular officers. So one guy was so hated, they raised $10,000 for whoever killed him. He didn't get killed, but he had to leave the country. Okay. And also, you know, kind of short of that, there was, you know, these are the kind of extreme ends of it, but, you know, much more widespread were things like, kind of like in World War One. They were, in Vietnam, they were supposed to go on missions called Search and Destroy, but instead they called them Search and Avoid, where they'd be sent out into the jungle and then they'd be like, they're trying to avoid any enemy combatants, you know, and just kind of hang around until they could go back and said, oh, yeah. That's a good idea. Another one that I remember is in like 1943 in Italy, where the partisans in Italy just decided to switch sides <laughs> against and overthrew Mussolini. Yeah. yeah, yeah they yeah. just switched sides. A lot of Mussolini's conscript army were anti-fascists who were going along with, I guess, like like, like a dictatorial regime like that works. Mm-hmm. People kind of have to go along with it if they're afraid they'll get killed if they don't. But then, yeah, when the tide turned, whole units deserted and joined the partisans, and then there were general strikes and insurrections all over Italy. Um, yeah. So um, to any of the soldiers who are in Venezuela, who are in the border of Colombia, Venezuela, you do have a choice. Exactly. Yeah. Even if not, you know, even if you can't have a full-on mutiny, you know, more unofficial things. Are, are easier to do. So let's go to the housing arena. So I guess we went from feudalism to kind of like a rentier thing class. And I've seen many houses that have like wires that are exposed for toddlers and things like that. So what were things that people did? Well, besides them in the Bolshevik Revolution where they chased them off and shot them, their landlords, like what were some of the things that they did with their landlords? Yeah. Well, short of shooting landlords, um, <laughs> yeah, across the world there are loads of, ex- you know, really great examples of tenants organizing for better conditions. And where we are now, New York City is one of the, you know, has a really great history of tenant organizing, in particularly all through the kind of, 20th century and you know which is renting in New York is bad but there are kind of some laws here protecting tenants which a lot of you know in places like London people would be quite envious of so um, the best known kind of tenant direct action is a rent strike which is kind of what it sounds tenants en masse just withhold rent from the landlord normally you'd be either demanding better conditions or demanding lower rent and um, actually, in New York, um, if the if if you ask the landlord to do repairs in written form and they don't do it, you can actually withhold rent. And then, can you talk about the one during the Great Depression, where, like, they stopped evictions? Yeah. So alongside, yeah, because often if you do go on rent strike, and you know, in New York in the early twentieth century, there were loads of rent strikes, which is worth mentioning, you know, and stressing. They were almost all organized by women because. You know, for the most part, men were kind of at work at day jobs. And it was kind of housewives and women who were, and often women workers as well, like women factory workers, mm-hmm. who organized stuff in the community and, and started these I'm going to give one pushback in that even if they don't have a job, women are working. Like they're babysitting, cleaning the house, like housekeeping, cooking. And those are all monetizable things, like if you hire a third party. So we should get rid of the idea that housewives don't work. Oh, no, I wasn't saying that at all. Like, what, what I was saying was that, because, um, of course, you know, all that stuff is work. Childcare is work. Housework is work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not treated as work in a capitalist society because it's not 
paid for, mm-hmm. you know, um, for the most part. But what I was trying to say was that a lot of the housewives who did that were factory workers as well. Oh, I see. So, you know, because obviously, you know, this is something that you're also, you know, is that often, you know, women will do all the housework and childcare in the home, but they will also do paid work as well. Yeah, <laughs> you know? they, they multitask. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's exploitation there by the boss, but also by, you know, the, the husband, the husband who doesn't do the share of the, the housework and all that. So, yes, during rent strikes and also in times like the, the Great Depression where there are a lot of evictions where people couldn't afford to pay their rent, People have done things like organize eviction resistance and bailiff resistance. And all over the US, there are loads of examples of this, especially during the Depression, where if bailiffs were sent in to evict a family, either for taking part in a rent strike or for not being able to pay their rent, sometimes you'd get huge mobs, essentially, of the local community who would go to defend the house from bailiffs and from the police. And often they would be, the kind of crowds could be directed by women on rooftops who kind of uh, could get loudspeakers and shout about where they could go to throw things at the police and oh, what wow. have you. There and so there was that kind of actually defending people from eviction and repossession. And if that wasn't successful, then they could do things like wait till the person had been evicted, all their stuff put out in the street. When the bailiffs are gone, they go and take break back into the house, put all the person's stuff back in. You know, so it's estimated that during the Great Depression in the U.S., there are about 77,000 families who were re-put in properties they'd been evicted from. So that kind of tenant organizing was really, like, widespread. And in some states, tenant unions are not legal, but we all need to work on changing that. What about price control? So now you mentioned things like um, utility resistance. So, yeah, obviously another thing that we need in, in our homes is utilities like water and electricity nowadays. Mm-hmm. And again, these are essential services that we need, but they're provided solely on our ability to pay. And sometimes people don't have the ability to pay. And so there's some really great examples of where people have taken action around these sort of issues. So especially in South Africa, say, there's been a lot of resistance to, after apartheid, this is recently in the past you know, 10, 20 years, there's uh, been a lot of resistance to water shutoffs. Um, mm-hmm where if someone hasn't been able to pay their water bill, they'll send in a team of people to cut off their water. Mm-hmm. But then often you can get big crowds of people will come out to defend the person's house who's mm-hmm. going to be cut off. And obviously this is something that's relevant also in, in the US where there's all kinds of problems with water supply in various places. But so, so yeah, there's you know big resistance to water shutoffs, even in the face of real violent police mm-hmm. repression and people have been killed you mm-hmm. know, trying to defend people's water supply. And also... Again, in South Africa, there's a lot of resistance to electricity shutoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some people volunteer as they're called struggle electricians. And their job, their it's job that job. they volunteer, they reconnect people who've been disconnected. And, you know, in some areas, this kind of resistance is really quite widespread. So in Soweto, you know, up until quite recently, the last kind of figure I saw was showing that around 60% of people weren't paying for their electricity because they kind of couldn't afford to, but they were just, you know. Okay. Well, well, I have a completely different thought. It's like time jumping around, and I'm sorry. Have you ever read the Greek play Lysistrata? Uh, no. What happens there is that these men are always going out to war, and the women get together and decide that they won't have sex with any of the men until there's peace. There have been various women's strikes in in his <laughs> kind of well. One, the most famous one is in Iceland. You know, in 1970, a day. You know, there was a huge strike of women for one day where they were taking. They took off 
paid jobs if they had paid jobs uh-huh. and, and off housework and off childcare for a day, which was a really powerful and big sort of thing. But I am aware of other places where there have been sex strikes. Oh, do tell us about that. Um, I, I can't think of any particular examples. Okay. But I have read about, I have read about them um, as a as a real thing. Oh wow! History shows that sex strikes are surprisingly effective for political change. So in the 1600s, Iroquois women refused to engage in sex as a way to stop unregulated warfare. In 2003, in Liberia, there was a big sex strike until they had a peace treaty. That's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on a similar note, um, a podcast episode we're working on at the moment is about sex workers who organized a union at a strip club in um, San Francisco. Wow. And... um, they were trying to negotiate improvements, but after a few months, they hadn't got anything. So they decided to do uh, an on-the-job action, you know, to do some direct action at work. And what they decided they would do is they would dance. Mm-hmm. And so, they, you know, they were dancers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they would dance, but they wouldn't open their legs. Mm. So um, until they got what they sort of wanted. Okay. And that ended up being a, yeah. Women's March, pay attention. <laughs> it seems like, the worker with the gig economy and all that stuff, it feels disempowered. Like, what is your advice to help them feel empowered again? It's it's tricky, but I think in a lot of ways, it's not that this kind of, this casualized kind of work is not a new phenomenon as such. It's more like a late 19th century phenomenon because a lot of these big strikes historically around that time, they weren't permanently salaried employed workers. They were casual okay. people employed on these kind of on this sort of casual and, basis. And on the gig basis, yeah. Kind kind of like in, in a lot of ways like now. A difficulty now though is that, you know, in some places it's hard to even see who your colleagues are, you mm-hmm. know, to even to even meet them. But I think there have been some kind of inspiring examples of organizing in these areas. In London, there have been strikes by Deliveroo and Uber Eats drivers. Mm-hmm. So Deliveroo's like you English seamless. Mm-hmm. And, you know, strikes of those drivers organized pretty much by themselves through mm-hmm. WhatsApp groups. And I think, yeah, the key thing is working out ways we can communicate and connect with each other as workers. Because people like that, they're not really going to get big unions that are interested in trying to organize them, really, because they won't have stable Jews base. And also, like, for me, I think when the union is inorganic, like often in America... I mean, in Oklahoma, the teachers went on strike, but the National Teachers Union kind of settled for things that the teachers would not have settled for. So we also probably need to think about changing the structure of the union to be more organic. Yeah, or at least being able to organize independently of that. Yes. And I think that was really key what the teachers in West Virginia managed to do, you know, because there the action was organized. I mean, a lot of the initial communication was done through Facebook groups organized by the teachers and then the union you know some people went in on as representatives to negotiate on behalf of the teachers kind of self-delegated representatives Mm -hmm. and they then accepted a deal which the teachers didn't want but then the teachers were able to continue the action beyond that so I think that's a key thing for us to think how can we be able to communicate so we can decide to do things collectively ourselves even if our representatives say that we should sell for less well, I think that's the key. Yeah, that's a really key. Well, lucky we have a lot of technology to communicate with each other. I mean, last week we had a guest from Russia on and he called in from Russia. So, and I think at this moment in time with our technology, even global solidarity is possible, right? If we build the right um, solidarity networks. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, 
um, that's the that's the hope. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us. How would people find you if they wanted to ask you questions? Like you said, our website is at workingclasshistory.com. We're all over social media, so we're on Twitter at WRK Class History, Instagram, Working Class History, Facebook, Working Class History, and our podcast is Working Class History, available on every major podcast app. And you are also user-supported, right? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, funded by lovely patrons uh, on oh. Patreon. Okay, what's the website for your Patreon? It is patreon.com slash history. Excellent. I mean, history is always written by the kings, and so it's time that we document actual working-class history. Well, thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show. 